0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Alexandru Jennet. Based in Manchester, Alexandru is an associate professor in the Social uh, Statistics Department at the University of Manchester. He has a PhD in survey methodology from the University of Essex and was a postdoc at the National Center for Research Method- Methods and the Kathy Marsh Institute. His research and teaching focus on survey methodology, longitudinal data, measurement error, latent variable modeling, new forms of data, and missing data. You can follow him on Twitter at Janet underscore A, and check out his website at alexjanet.com. Alexander is the author of the LIMPA book, Longitudinal Data Analysis Using R. In the book, Alexander discusses longitudinal data analysis uh, in a very, very in-depth way, uh, but uh, in a very particular thing, he includes a lot of code in the book, so it's actually a very practical book for people who are learning to do longitudinal data analysis. In this interview, we're going to talk about his background and career, professional interests, his book. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a writer. So, thank you very much, Alexandra, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And you can call me Alex. Uh, I think Alex. that's uh, whenever I hear Alexandra, I feel like uh, I just, I've been naughty for some reason. It's kind of <laughs> what my mom says when uh, things went horribly wrong.
0: I know what you mean. There's two people in the world that are allowed to call me Leonard. Um, so, I'll, I'll call you Alex going forward. Um, uh, so uh, one thing I always like to do when I start these interviews is ask people for their origin story. Um, so I was t- wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into the career that you have.
1: Yeah, thank you. I've, I've been listening to a few of your podcasts and I thought, oh, this is, I have a very boring academic career. And then I like, oh, actually, its I'm not sure how typical it is. So I'm originally from Romania, so somewhere from the northeast, uh, kind of relatively close to the border with Ukraine and the Republic of Moldova. Um, and then I did my bachelor in Bucharest in the capital of Romania in sociology. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of a strange choice. I just went by elimination. I just went through all the things I didn't like and kind of sociology was the, the most interesting thing that was left. And actually it was a a really nice choice for me because, uh, yeah, it, it's really fascinating. So when I got there, I, I really got interested in, in research and I was really lucky since my second year as an undergrad, I was a research assistant. So I had kind of four years of kind of research experience in Romania, just, uh, yeah, starting as an undergrad. And that was great. I mean, we did, unlike, I think, uh, maybe studying in Western universities, you do lots of different things. So, you know, from interviews with shepherds to Uh, exit polls to uh, questionnaires with migrants in Spain and so on. So very diverse uh, experiences. And I really enjoyed research. So it was kind of clear I want to stay in academia. And I really was interested in in statistics and data collection, and especially this idea of measuring. So we have, sociology, we like... uh, big concepts like values and attitudes and things like this, but they're very hard to measure. And, uh, it was kind of fascinating for me. How, how can you measure concepts like this? Um, uh, and you know, I learned about different statistical techniques to do that. Um, and after that, I just, uh, some, some colleagues from Romania encouraged me to apply f- to study abroad. So I just applied for a scholarship and I was lucky enough to get it. And it was kind of a, a strange program. It was based in Belgium. The degree was in Belgium, but it was funded by the Luxembourg government. Uh, at that point, uh, Luxembourg didn't have a university, so it was actually based at the research center in, um, in Luxembourg, and part of the time you're in Luxembourg, part of the time in Belgium. Uh, and it was in social um, policy analysis, which wasn't necessarily the thing I really was interested in, but how the course was just stats from really good professors from the Netherlands. I said, okay, I can learn some social policy if on uh, the way I, I learned some stats from uh, these great professors. So I did uh, that degree. Then I had a gap year uh, where I, I lived in Germany for one year uh, while, well, and then I was applying for um, PhD programs in Germany and UK, uh, received two offers from the UK and decided to go to University of Essex. They had a really good group there working with longitudinal data. Um, and uh, data quality, a thing that I was interested in. I spent three years there doing my PhD and then moved to Manchester. And I've been there since uh, postdoc, uh, as assistant professor, then associate professor. So I've been here for, um, yeah, eight, nine years so
0: far. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that uh, really great story. It's um I, I always love the sort of stories of itinerant scholars um, uh, and people who move around uh, being having been formerly sort of to some extent, been one myself. Um, uh, I guess one question I have to ask: I've got I've got a, a, an old friend from Romania. So, you grew up under the Ceausescu regime when you were younger?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't really say so. I mean, I was born towards the end of the '80s, so I can oh, say okay. you know I can't experience can, can say I experienced a lot of that. I you know I do know a lot of the things that happened because of our family and also the '90s. They were different, but in some ways, but also not the best (laughs) probably years of uh, our country. So, yeah, I know a little bit about it and, you know, I know stories of, you know, my parents queuing at three in the morning to get food and things like that. Uh, but I can't say I I lived for it.
0: Yeah, no. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much for, uh, (laughs) for sharing that detail. Yeah. I know, um, people from that, my, uh, my, my family, you know, is from you. Ukraine region, and we all we all have stories of conflict and, and things like that, even if we haven't experienced them ourselves. But they're they're kind of there in 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 all of us. Um, uh, and so, actually, one one sort of fun question to have, I guess, is um, uh, before we get onto sort of the serious matter of your your scholarship and your and your book and things like that. Uh, what was it like moving to the UK? Was it a culture shock? I mean, it I guess you'd, you'd been you'd been around already.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting uh, how yeah countries are similar and different. I, remember, I think the first year I've been here, I was just complaining half of the time because there were things <laughs> I got, I was used to it. I didn't understand how they couldn't travel over the channel. I figured, okay, I mean, it's not such a big difference. So how, uh, and I remember, I don't know, things like bread or cheese or things like that, which you would see in Germany and Belgium and Luxembourg, all of this, they're kind of similar in the culture they have. Uh, and I just remember saying, oh, "How? Why is it so hard to find these these things?" Uh, and then you learn that you know you can find really good bread and cheese. You just you need to know where to look, and I mean, it's just uh, you kind of need to understand a little how how things uh, how things work. So yeah, there were lots of cultural things like this, and also I don't. For example, I found people in, and this might be kind of. Uh, Stereotypes like people from the Netherlands, for example, very direct. While people from Britain kind of yeah. indirect. And often I was probably just not understanding what people uh, were telling me because I'm just kind of direct. So if you don't really tell me what you think, then I I will not understand the subtle <laughs> things uh, from the tone or the indirect, uh, you know, in those. So yeah, I think there are lots of uh, small cultural things like this. But it was really interesting because in my PhD, in my cohort, I think there were 10 of us in this Institute for Social and Economic Research. And I think only one of us was from the UK, everyone else was from somewhere else. So it was very international. Uh, I remember our, the next cohort, everybody seemed to be from Latin America for some reason. So it was, we were kind of in a bubble. So, you know, there were, uh you know universities are this kind of strange places where uh you are in a country and you in a sense you're not in that country uh to some degree so yeah i I, there were you know colleagues from belgium and from uh other parts like uh, we we could complain together about all the things that we took for granted and uh weren't so easy to find here
0: yeah, that's that's really great. Uh, speaking of the indirectness, you reminded me of a funny personal story. When I moved to London with a friend and a couple of friends in 1999, dates me. Um, uh, we had a very small apartment and we needed an an extra bed. Um, and in in Canada, the name for like a kind of military collapsible camp bed is a bed is a cot. Uh, so me and my buddy went down to the local used furniture store and asked for a cot. Um, and the person looked at the English person who ran the store looked at us and said, what do you mean? And we said, well, we'd like a cot. And he said, what for? We'd said, well, to sleep it. And he said, well, what do you you mean? How big of a cot do you need? We said, well, like a man-sized cot. Um, And he just looked at us and said, very indirectly, this isn't that kind of store. Um, So for anyone watching or listening, a cot in the UK means like a baby crib. (laughs) So we we'd gone to this used furniture store, asking for a man-sized baby crib to sleep in, and no one would tell us directly what what yeah. they thought we were actually asking for. Um, and yeah, so there's a lot of sort of a lot of learning you have to do. Um, and you know, there's also sort of like you know, whenever you move anywhere and you encounter other other foreigners, there's a lot of complaining. But any place that has so many foreigners in it, we're there to learn, uh, and there to study, and there to contribute, particularly in in you know in academia is a very welcoming and, and, and great culture, uh, which the UK definitely has.
1: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have survived here for so long if it wasn't the case. And yeah, I think academia in UK really is still a, a very nice place to be. Lots of opportunities, lots of amazing people. So, um, yeah, I and i think it just wherever you go it's it, it takes a while to just kind of adapt uh even with the weather and you know other things that you get for granted how houses are built you know how uh the things that are in toilets that you don't expect for uh, i don't know having separate cold and what uh, cold and hot uh taps in the uh, bathroom for example that was i remember being uh, shocked by this for a long time
0: <laughs> do you know do you know the band the eels no no they they have actually a song about that um like, you know what I'll, I'll I'll try to remember to put it in, in the in the show notes it's called hot 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 cold 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 um it's very funny yeah. um uh but yes for anyone who's traveled to the UK knows about the the one hot tap and the one cold tap um but uh yeah and and the sort of like arbitrariness of British plumbing <laughs> <laughs> uh it's it's like an adventure game uh, every time you go um but uh but but also sort of you know very 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 sort of fun in its own way um so yeah so uh so uh you um uh were interested in measurement um uh and did so you know social science and stuff like that and um i i guess i've got sort of a general question that i think a lot of people um might have when if they got the opportunity to talk to someone like you which is uh how can you really kind of be so sure that the say survey data that you gather and your interpretation of it is accurate
1: so I think maybe you're you're asking the wrong person. So I'm a, I'm a methodologist. So kind of my training is mm-hmm. to just find problems with all the data. It's like literally this is the thing that I'm t- what I published. So like oh another problem, another problem. So I can give you a very long list of issues. Uh, I can say that you know the, there are some things in which we can test our predictions. So I don't know. One classical example is can we predict? Uh, elections and sometimes you know we get it wrong but for a lot of times we get it we get it right there are some things where it's very it's very hard so if I say okay uh, you know we have this measure of human values and I say I you know I ask you I give you maybe 10 or 20 questions and based on those 20 questions I can say what kind of values you have and it's very hard to validate that if I say oh you're 6.5 on the scale that we made up, you can't really contradict me because we made up the scale and you know 6.5 is our best approximation but there are some things where so one one type of research that i'm really interested in is kind of looking at different sources of data and just kind of trying to understand the issues with all of them so for example in a project with colleagues from criminology we're looking at official crime measures versus crimes from survey as they are reported by respondents there's this whole long literature knowing that, you know, the 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 official crime uh, rates can be wrong because people, you know, don't go to the police or some are not recorded and we trust the surveys more. But the, we also have, you know, sixty, seventy years of literature showing that surveys are not perfect. There they're issues with surveys. And kind of I don't my take is all of them are incorrect to some degree and Uh, As survey methodologists, we're just always trying to improve. So a lot of the work I do is like criticizing data, but also trying to figure out, okay, how can we correct for this? And one strategy is just always to improve the way we collect data, you know, understanding, okay, there are techniques to see if people misunderstand questions. So we would do interviews or we would ask people to say, what are you thinking about when I ask you this question? And uh, that way we try to improve the way we ask people questions. other approaches are kind of statistical ways to correct for it. So for example, I could compare the official statistics in uh, in uh, crimes and the survey data, and then try to see, okay, can we combine them? Both of them are imperfect. Can we get s- somehow closer to, to the truth by combining them and using some statistical models? So a lot of, I have lots of colleagues that you know are expert in data collection and understanding all of these issues and trying to have the best uh, questions, the you know the best ways to invite people in the survey, and then you have these statisticians that kind of are trying to, uh, after we get the data, to correct for measurement uh, error and other types of errors. And what's really kind of fascinating about this field is it's very interdisciplinary. So you have you know psychologists that work with the development of questions. You have people that you know, do, uh, you know, apps or the design of the interface for surveys, you have statisticians, you have sociologists. So it's very interdisciplinary. So, and when you go and talk to colleagues, it's like they they can come from different uh, perspectives to look at uh, the same problem. And I think that's, that's, for me, it's really exciting. Even, like, I'm never going to say, you know, survey data is perfect or this data is perfect, but I can say, you know, like, we have a community that is trying to figure it out and trying to do the best that we, we can do, you know, given the resources we have.
0: Yeah, no, that's such it's, it's, that's a fascinating uh, field. Um, and the challenges that you face in particular as a kind of like authority in that field um, are more than than most would base because, I mean, especially if you're if you're someone who sort of challenges some to some extent the sort of uh, certainty that sometimes people place on numbers when they see them in particular. Um, you know, by saying, like, you know, there's all these problems with the way that we do things, you can face particular challenges. I assume that there's sort of colleagues that you encounter, um, who don't like the fact that probably you sort of like the first thing you do is say, well, here's all these problems with the data that we collected. Um, but I, that, that actually sort of, I, I, every once in a while I ask kind of self-indulgent questions on the podcast, probably more than I should. Um, so let me ask you a question about terminology. I'm going to, um, so. One thing I find endlessly frustrating is the way that people I'm going to pick on psychology. Um people in psychology will use terms like data and experiment and laboratory. Um uh when people use terms like that most people when they hear them they think of things like bunsen burners and like temperature takers and stuff like that, right? So there's like what's the data on in my experiment and it's like I had a beaker of water, I turned up the heat under it at room temperature, at sea level, and then I added some salt to the water and I did the same thing and I got a different result. Uh, when people do things like put a marshmallow in front of a kid in a, in a room and sort of say they've done an experiment in a lab, it just drives me crazy. Like you haven't done anything remotely like what happened in the other scenario um what can you do when it comes to sort of like things like so, so for example like in a lot of work that you do is like survey so it's like you're asking people questions and getting their answers what can you do to sort of like um explain to people what the difference is between measuring temperature and like taking surveys and when you're presenting sort of the results of your analysis that you've done
1: yeah i mean i think partially just trying to get across the uncertainty that we have I mean partially you know people will they can when they give you very precise numbers you have this illusion that okay this they know what they're talking about it's yeah this average is 6.5.3 you know uh I don't know happiness of people in whatever in Manchester is 5.35 and like well is it really I mean I'm not really sure is that and there are some ways to estimate that which are relatively simple And even those are not presented like, you know, confidence intervals are a way to show uncertainty, but those are underestimation. So those basically don't take into account all the issues, you know, my colleagues and me are working on like measurement error, the fact that not everyone is participating and so on. Um, so I, yeah, I think partially we need to be honest that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and then I say, we also need to like think, you know, if they are useful or not so even you know given that we will for some things we will not be able to do the kind of experiment that you think okay it's not physics or chemistry or anything like that and the question is you know is it good enough and partially this is our discussion also with new forms of data or you know uh how much money should you pay for different types of data well it really depends what you're trying to do if your question is Uh, okay, I want to see if people like this new type of yogurt. Well, okay, probably it's fine to go out the corner of the street and just pick 40 people and see, okay, this is fine. If you're trying to, you know, calculate unemployment and you're going to make policy regarding this, you want to be super precise. So maybe it's worth paying, you know, 20 million pounds to get that statistic and make sure it's the best possible, even if it's not perfect. So it's also, I think we need to put things in, in context and there's lots of literature trying to use observational data and uh, get at causal relationships, and it's very hard. It's very hard because we we can do experiments in surveys, so we can say, okay, you know, a thousand people, we ask them in this way, or we give them a vignette and we ask them how they we see how they react, and a thousand people get a different version. But again, this is a survey. It's not uh, observational. It's not uh, you know like a controlled environment. They could be. You know maybe the interview is at their home maybe other people are present maybe i don't know there are different things that would make that uh problematic to say okay that's a perfect experiment Uh, but again maybe most of the time that's useful enough and we're just trying to make the 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 most of it that we can and partially this is why things like launch room data are useful or there are lots of techniques out there you know like from instrumental variables quasi-experimental design so we have like an entire array where we're trying to use this kind of survey data or other uh observational data and try to get causal uh relationships. But it is it is complicated because of all these other things that are happening. And also the fact that we're humans and you know it's it's very hard to predict uh or to yeah to just say uh yeah with hundred percent certainty if you do this, this will happen.
0: Yeah, that, I, I got to say, I really love that, that, that really great and kind of nuanced answer. I mean, what you threw in there was, you know, the fact that A, it's hard, B, it's not perfect, and C, we have to do it. Um, uh, <laughs> and so it's really important to have people sort of tackling these things, even if, um, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of people out there who kind of, you know, don't draw attention to the fact that, you know, it's 6.25 because I defined it a certain way, not because that's the way it is out in the world um uh I mean, even though a lot of people sort of really want that to be true that things can be that precise it's not true that things can be that precise precise but we actually still do really need to do it we need to do something uh to base our policies on to base our you know business decisions on about like sort of flavors of yogurt or what have you but also you know crime policy and then and, and things like that it's just really important to be doing something um and when it co- comes to doing things it's super interesting um when uh one uh, talk I, I watched um, preparing for this interview that you gave on YouTube, you talked about the difference between surveys and then sort of, as it were, more modern things like digital meter data and a super interesting thing called data donation, which I hadn't heard about, which, but which made sense as soon as I, as soon as you mentioned the GDPR. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about data donation and w- what that is and how, how people like you use that, that, that kind of uh, information to sort of do your research.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is really quite new and like I'm very lucky to work with very good colleagues from the Netherlands and Germany that are experts in this. So as a result of GDPR, which is this law in, uh, in Europe uh, regarding data protection, basically all large organizations are obliged to make your data available to you as a user. Uh, and there are some rules about, you know, it should be readable, understandable. There are some rules, although each company can give data in their own way. So you can go to Facebook and Twitter, uh, WhatsApp, uh, and so on, uh, Google, to ask for your data, and you can download it and look at it. And uh, colleagues thought, well, it's very hard to get access to this data. So for example, if I want to, uh, you know, do research and see if Facebook use uh, leads people to be uh, more right-wing, ideally I would have access to Facebook data, but we can't really get access to Facebook data. So what can we do? Well, we can use surveys, but we know, you know, people have issues remembering how many times they do things uh, and their issues with surveys. So one idea our colleagues had, well, given that people can download their own data, how about asking them to donate their data to researchers? And I think this is really, really exciting because in a way this shows that users have ownership of the data. So it's their data, and we know lots of companies make uh, money using data using data in different ways. Uh, but users can use that data and they can give it to other people or they can uh, you know make it public or you know delete it or do whatever they want with it. And uh, colleagues from the Netherlands are developing a platform where people can donate their data. so they can download, let's say Facebook data and say, okay, yes, I want to do- uh, to donate it to these researchers. And they upload, it, uh, upload the data to to the platform and uh, they have a few things. So one, they can see the data. So this is already quite exciting. You don't need to be a programmer to say, okay, what does Facebook say about me? The platform will help you visualize and understand your own data. And then you can decide what data to share. So you can say, well, I don't want to share you know, my conversation with my mother, but I'm fine to share you know, how many times I logged in on Facebook or something like that, or uh, yeah, you can select what type of data to share. And even within that, you can delete some, you know, instances that you don't want uh, to share. You can also, these platforms also can um, basically summarize or anonymize your data. So in that way, the researcher won't know. So if you share your WhatsApp conversation, there won't be any names there. There'll be person A, person B. Uh, and so in that way, uh, you have, uh, you know, privacy is, uh, is maintained. So I think this is really exciting. I mean, it's I think it's still early days and it's quite a lot of work for people to donate the data. It's you, they need to go to their account, download it, upload it. Uh, but I think it's, it's very, very exciting because it gives power to the user, uh, to get the data and they learn, okay, this is my data. I can decide what to do with it. I can decide who to share it with. Uh, and I can see, you know, what's anonymized. I can get a report on this data. So I think it's a very exciting avenue. Uh, the problem is things can change. So we don't know, you know, if this will work in 10 years or, uh, the, this is kind of the issue. Technology changes a lot, but so far I think this, you know, it's a very exciting, uh, area for data, new forms of data for academic researchers.
0: Um, your answer there got me thinking about something i had not planned to ask about um but uh, a lot of one of the reasons that people do kind of surveys and sort of get data about people and stuff like that is to try and craft policy so here's a big high level political question for you do you think china which has no such restrictions as the gdpr um has an advantage in crafting social policy over europe now that europe has something like the gdpr and by the way i'm not asking you to sort of like this is your official kind of thing. I'm just springing this question on you, but what do you think about that sort of high-level question? Does it, does an authoritarian country that can take all the data it wants from people have an advantage over crafting social policy over a country that sort of protects people or, or a region like Europe like Europe does?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I haven't thought about that. Um, I think it's a trade-off, right? So it's a trade-off people having the power over their own data, in a sense, it's hard for us to get data for researchers, even for academic researchers, you know, like we might have response rates of, you know, 10, 20%, 30% in a good survey, that means 70% of the people we asked don't participate. Uh, In a data donation study, maybe, you know, 80% of the people will not be willing to donate their data. Uh, And then I think this is a kind of a value uh, question. Is it, our data is worse, but then people have the power, you know, to decide about their data, about their privacy. And in Europe, maybe we decided that's, you know, a fair trade. Even in the US, if you think, okay, you don't have GDPR, so these companies maybe have access to more data, they can link more data. uh, And then we say, well, yeah, those companies maybe will be more performant, they have more data, they can do more advanced things, but maybe the users, have a disadvantage, they're losing some of their privacy. And I think, you know, societies kind of need to decide, okay, where are we on this continuum of kind of individual freedoms and privacies versus, you know, large institutions from companies to government, just having access to everything. And there are, even in Europe, there are countries, you know, like the Scandinavian uh, Scandinavian countries, they have amazing admin data. They know, you know, they, they're all the health records address all of these things uh are are available uh they're not public but in principle researchers can use them for example you know you can literally get access to data on everyone i don't in norway and sweden to do to do analysis and yeah that's a trade-off they're happy with so they're happy for example to have that in uk they you know there's no id for example or they can't agree on having a, a unique id for each individual and this is kind of the the agreement in this country regarding you know privacy and what's important to them so even yeah i, I say it it depends a lot and also it's kind of this culture so i you say in the nordic countries in europe there's more trust so they're fine for the state to have this data and they trust okay they're going to have good ownership of the data they're not going to sell it we're not going to you know find it on uh pirate bay or something like that uh while in other it's more like the wild west It's like everybody gets as much data as you can and you know, make the most of it until, I don't know, somebody sues you, for example. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah no, no, it's, it's, it's super, no thanks that really great answer. I mean, and it is, it is interesting how cultural these things are um, uh, res- with respect to trust and things like that, but also, you know, how like, you know, companies or governments can often think that like, oh, we've got the data, so we know what the reality is. And then you hear the stories for people on the ground who are like, "Oh, like this is this is an old story from like my my, you know, basically the the app I use sort of made a wrong conclusion about me based on my usage. So I'm going to use it differently now, to give it, to give it so so that it gives me the right ads or something like yeah. that. Uh, and so like you know, there's 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 always kind of interaction and back and forth and iteration going on on the user side as well as the sort of provider side and so people who think that they've got this sort of you know clear picture of what's going on there's no such thing there's no such thing as a clear picture when you're playing with people
1: yeah I mean a really nice example I think you know there are some insurance companies that uh, they track your activity and then they change the premium based on your activity and you can buy a device you know online that will uh make steps on your phone or your device it will just move so it appears that you're you have steps so it's like okay if you don't have trust and you know you're followed then you're going to do all this kind of stuff right you're just going to find a solution to this and you're giving them the data but then you trust it less while i think in a place like the nordic countries, where it's like a social contract and you think okay i trust you and you can hold this data uh, probably, you know, people are not making stuff up or, you know, lying to the government just so uh, they have the wrong records. So yeah, people can be quite creative. If they know they're, you know, they're followed or, uh, and they want to get around it, uh, I think there are solutions for that, usually.
0: Yeah, no, no, definitely, that's uh, that's curious. I hadn't heard about that one about adding steps, but it completely makes sense. Um, uh, and, and, but also sort of shows how, how sort of like real world, these kind of like the kind of work that you do uh, is, you know, that like, it is the basis for like, you know, your insurance policy, uh, is, you know, surveys and data and things like that. Uh, so on that note, just moving on to talk about, I mean, I could talk with you about like all of these sort of like sort of super interesting things for a while, but to just go on specifically to talk about your book. Um, uh, so what is longitudinal data?
1: Oh, and that's interesting because you're you're saying about, you know, in different fields, I know psychologists discuss about, you know, experiments and they think of experiments in a certain way. And uh, that's interesting with launch data because also people in different fields talk about launch data in different ways. And I literally need to start the course and say, okay, this is my definition. So just, you know, to make sure that we understand each other. And the definition is very simple. It's like we have multiple observations from the same individuals. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, And in that definition, a lot of things uh, become virtual data. Uh, social media data is longitudinal. I can observe you multiple times your tweets or, you know, your posts. Uh, administrative data is longitudinal. So I have your employment history, for example. Uh, survey data can be launched only if I ask you, you know, this year and next year the same questions. Uh, so actually a lot of sensor data is longitudinal, for example, because I have I, don't know, I have a sensor that measures if you know, somebody is crossing the street, uh, I don't know, uh, somewhere in Manchester, that's longitudinal because I have multiple observations. Uh, so it's actually a very big umbrella term. And that definition is important because the type of models I discussed, they need that kind of data, but they don't care if it's a survey or social media or something else. They just care, okay, there are multiple observations from the same. Elements they can actually be businesses or something else. They don't have to be individuals. Uh, in the social sciences, typically they are individuals, but yeah, they can be something else as well.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So yeah, so uh, specifically in the kind of things that you're that you're talking about, it's kind of like um, uh, you design surveys to sort of sample people over the same the same individuals over time, if you can. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So there's a i mean we have most of the surveys we call them cross-sectional so we just do a survey with a person at a particular point in time and that's it so if we do polls before elections we will just select i don't know a thousand people interview them and that's it but there is this group of surveys that are soon surveys uh and they're really important i mean they're in the eu for example there's the eu silk that literally the statistics from from that study Decide, you know, how many uh, the funds that different countries get, yeah. or if they meet certain, you know, criteria, yeah. um, and there are some things you can only do with that kind of data. So if I want to see uh, how Bob changes in time, you know, I see, I want to see, you know, what's happening with this individual, I need to observe him at multiple points in time. Um, and you need, this data actually quite hard to collect, it's expensive, it's time consuming, But there are some things you can only do with this kind of data. So most countries have some kind of large zone studies because it's important for policy. And uh, so, for example, in economics, often they use it to make histories of employment. So in order to know if somebody is employed or when they get fired, when they get a new job, well, I need to observe them for a long period of time. Otherwise, uh, I don't really, it's very hard to get this history.
0: And so, yeah, that actually that's uh, just so many questions, but, um, uh, so like, for example, when you say it's expensive to get this data, does that mean that like, for example, people get paid to participate in studies?
1: Yeah. So in most studies, and I work with a lot of large large studies that are, you know, funded by research councils, for example, uh, there's this idea of kind of a fair, uh, have a fair payment for people's time, right? So these studies, uh, at Usually they last around an hour, the interview. But there are some studies in the US they charge, maybe not now, but sometimes they would last four hours. And you think, well, somebody is giving four hours of their of their life for you, uh, and they need to get. We call it an incentive. Um, and you can also think, yeah, it's just kind of a fair payment for their contribution uh, and for their time. Uh, smaller studies sometimes maybe they don't have incentives or they're smaller. Uh, but I think in large studies, large some studies, there is an expectation that, okay, the respondent needs to get something for, for their time.
0: And again, um, um, a bit specific about your book, so where does coding come in and R?
1: Yeah, so you can't really do statistics without coding, so you kind of need coding to some degree. You, you do have software that is point and click, so maybe you don't really always need to write code, but... It's recommended to have code. So, you know, your work is reproducible uh, and so on. And basically, you know, since I was undergrad, I learned how to code, to run, to do statistics. And it's kind of an expectation that, okay, if you want to do more advanced things, then you need to to learn to code. Why R specifically? Uh, well, one is open source and it's uh, very popular. It's a very large community and probably for statistics is one of the most popular software out there, Python is very popular, but probably less so for statistics. So it's kind of R, I would say is the go-to tool for, for statistics. Um, and I would say, even if people, I don't know, often, at least, uh, in sociology, when I studied often people were in sociology because they didn't want to do math or stats or, you know, coding, but if you want to do any quantitative analysis, then you need, you need these things. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you ask. Um, and yeah, I think R probably is one of the best tools you can use because it's open source, it has a very large community. Uh, you know, I can go and teach it in Africa and people can just download it. I, they don't need to pay for a license. Uh, they can, there are lots of free resources online and so on. So, um, yeah, I would say almost anyone who wants to do any kind of quantitative analysis, they need to learn. Uh, coding, probably R is a pretty good tool out of those that exist out there.
0: Um, and uh, your book is currently marked on LeanPub as 80% complete. Um, uh, and I just in the last part of the interview, we talked about sort of the the guest sort of uh, work as an author and how they approach writing their books and things like that. Uh, so do you plan on ever making it 100% complete? Is this a sort of like forever book that you're always going to be updating? What's your Kate yeah. writing and publishing new chapters? Just if you could talk a little bit about your approach to the the project.
1: Yeah, I'm a little torn. I have this list of all the things I want, and I, you know, I use uh, I use kind of a carbon system where I just track all the stuff I want, and I, I have more and more things that I move to this, uh, you know, maybe edition two or uh, you know, I wish I would do these things. So ideally, I do want to to finish it and to kind of, you know, say, okay, we have 100% for now. And then in the future, there might be a second edition or I might work on it. I do think there is, it's good to to have a, you know, to, to feel that you finish something and move on. That being said, you know, uh, one of the reasons that I use uh, LeanPub was this idea that you can update the book because the code in R changes quite a lot. So the things that, you know, this year Uh, I have in the book maybe next year doesn't work anymore and one of the advantages of using the platform is that okay I can update the book so people can just download the latest version and the code will work Um, so in that sense if I want to keep it up to date I do need to continue working on it uh, from from time to time at least but there are lots of things I want to add I I have a list but I also have a deadline so I hope next year to say it's a hundred percent and partially because I also want to, you know, to, to have a printed version of it. So oh. that kind of forces me to have a, a end <laughs> in sight.
0: Yeah, that's really great. Thanks for sharing that. It's, um, it's curious. Um, there, there are sort of lean pub authors who are like, kind of like, um, they like one, one author in particular, I remember, like he sort of had his book at 99% complete and he wanted to leave it there forever, but then he got people going, why don't you ever complete the damn book? And he's like, well, I, I I put it at, I leave it an incomplete because I want to be continually adding to it. I think it's my form of generosity and engagement with the audience. But then there's people who are like, well, now you're 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 cheating me because you're not actually finishing the book. Um, and so this concept of a sort of publishing an in-progress book can have like a sort of interesting back and forth uh, between the sort of authors, authors and readers and things like that. So people can be like, yeah. why is your book still incomplete? And it's like, because I'm still adding to it all the time. Why, why would you complain about that? Uh, but of course, you know, but, there's, there's communication issues and things like that. And then, and then as you're mentioning, it's sort of the idea of a volume two and things like that. How does that, what's the difference between a second volume and adding something to an existing book and things like that. It's just sort of interesting challenges, but communicating about it yeah. is just the most important thing.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, at least some of the readers i have they were yeah slightly confused about that because they saw it's 80 percent and like they said okay so i can't get it in a way or like i'm not sure if this is available and they see all right. the chapters and right. are just the chapters that are available or are these the chapters that you wish to have when it's 100 <laughs> percent. yeah uh, so yeah maybe we can communicate that better and also yeah maybe some people just are not used to the concept they just know okay the book is either out or it's you know it's a dichotomous thing it either existed or it doesn't exist
0: <laughs> yeah no no it's it's actually I, one thing i can say it's like sort of a sort of insider view from having done help helped people publish uh in progress books for over 10 years now at lean pub we used to get a lot more questions about what it means for a book to be partially complete uh than we do now uh most people mm. kind of get it um, uh, they still have questions, which is great. And we try and foster communication between authors and readers and stuff like that. And, you know, putting your email address in the introduction to your book and saying, contact me with typos or what have you is a really, is a really important way of doing that. Uh, but we do get a, a lot of, uh, like a lot more people than used to sort of get the idea of like, oh, okay. Uh, but yes, the being very clear for anyone who's made it to this part of the interview, <laughs> and there are people who actually skip to the end to sort of hear about these kind of details. But, um, if you're publishing a book in progress, if you've got a table of contents, being very clear, to TBD, <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, is a very important thing to add uh, so that people don't get sort of confused or disappointed if they download your book and they're like, oh, you know, that chapter that I saw on the table of contents actually isn't written yet, um, you know, and it, even in including like sort of putting like if you have a plan for like this will be out at certain times, stuff like that. Even just like putting something like that just gives people confidence that you're there's an author on the other end of this who's thinking about it knows what they're doing and has plans uh, can be a very important part of uh, in progress publishing um the last question I always like to ask on the interview if the guest is a is a lean pub author is um if there was one thing that had you shake that has you shaking your fist at lean Pub going damn you lean pub, why can't you fix this stupid bug or problem or if there was one magical feature we could build for you, what would you ask us to do
1: Yeah so. I'm not sure if I'm using everything, you know, the the full LeanPub system because I mostly create my, you know, PDF and uh, ebook and then I upload them. So for the most part, I suffer, me and Art together spend lots of time, you know, <laughs> trying to deal with all the nitty gritties about creating a nice PDF and e- uh, ebook. So in that sense, you know, I actually don't do a lot of things on on the website except uploading and putting some descriptions. But there are some things and maybe because, uh, a big part of my audience is from academia. So a lot of people ask, well, can we access to access this through the universities and I try to explain, you know, like it's a different system. It's kind of, I don't know I tell them, think of it like software. So you get access to the software, you get access to future updates. Um, but I think it would be, and I had, you know, libraries ask me, asking me, you know, how, how can we get access to this for our you know students or people at our university and i think it would be good if you i'm not sure if you have plans for that if it would be a possibility to have kind of institutional access because there are publishers that do that even if you know they have access to some books or for some periods or for i don't know there's i don't know i guess systems in which you can set that up but i think that would be for people coming from academia uh that would be quite good and then yeah, uh, let's say an institution has access for, for a year and then this many people can can download it or access it I'm not sure if you thought about that
0: yeah no thanks thanks very much for bringing that up um it is something we thought about um our, our sort of like long-standing policy is like if uh a library is interested and we we do get contacted all the time by libraries particularly academic libraries and stuff like that our answer is contact the author um mm. and and they can do it it's a self like lean is a self-publishing platform Authors own their own copyright. They own their own work. Currently, our position with library purchases is, like, contact the author and ask them. Uh, they can make the arrangement with you. Um, to, to get to the very sort of in the weeds about this, A, LeanPub books are, can be updated at any time, which blows up librarians' minds. Um, uh, you know, they very much like for things to be done and acquire them and put them in their collection. Uh, and the idea that it can be changed just this just, like, they often they, they might be interested in it as individuals but as people who are in institutions that's a very difficult thing to deal with uh not and not just like from their own perspective as like sort of archivists or whatever but like you know there, there might be someone who's like you know you can imagine two students who download a book at different times and have different copies and then a professor who's in the class saying go to page 22 and they're like that's a different page for both of us, you know. What What do you do? And then everybody's pointing fingers at each other um, for like what went wrong. So there's there's that that sort of complication, uh, which of course is resolved by having everyone have their own Leanpub account, have their own copy of the book in their Leanpub account, and being able to download it and go. Oh, we can solve this problem right now. Everybody sign in and download your book. Um, so having a Leanpub account is actually the primary way of making sure everybody has access to the, the same edition. But that sort of doesn't work really well with kind of institutions, um, unless they have a single point of download for every user. Um, the other thing is that, and this is very, this is the sort of me talking, not lean pub talking. Um, libraries don't really pay authors a lot and be blunt about it. Um, like they might, they might want, I, I love libraries. Libraries are important part of my life, my academic life in, in the past and things like that. But you know they'll want to pay an author fifty bucks for their ebook. You know, and it's like if you're, I think most authors should take the deal personally, but a lot of them mm-hmm. don't want to do that because they're like, what? Like so, fifty bucks, and now a hundred thousand people can read my book. You know that yeah. that's you know, that's not a very good deal, and so that's one of the reasons that we actually sort of leave it up to the author to decide because it's up to it's there's some people who are like. My mission is to have as many people as possible read my book. Um, other people are like, you know, that's just not, that's just not fair. Um, so we leave it up to individuals, but we may someday have a kind of like blanket library policy where we take care of it for authors. It would definitely be an opt in kind of thing. I would say at least in in this moment, uh, again, because of those issues of kind of fairness and, uh, mission and purpose that individuals have, um. Uh, and and again, there's the sort of this sort of very important matter of coordination. Um, when it comes to academia in particular, for example, citation is a is a specific problem <laughs> that lean Pub books have, uh, where the page number can change, the quote can change, everything in the book can actually change, uh, which is in a sense no different than sort of citing a web page, for example, which is more or less a solved problem in academia. But uh, yeah, they're just sort of very interesting issues. Again, the sort of short answer is, it's up to the author, but um, yes, we do get contacted by libraries all the time asking about LeanPub books, and um, hopefully someday there will be more convention around this kind of thing uh, that will make it easier to deal with. Well, uh, Alex, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your, out of your evening um, to talk to me and to talk to our audience and all of us, and thank you very much for using LeanPub as uh, the platform for uh, your really great book.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks.